Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Mo and Friends Sports Podcast. Making his Mo and Friends debut today is a Melbourne Demons fan and an old uni mate of mine, Scott. Welcome to the show, mate. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Mo. Thanks for making the time. Let's um, kick off with your favourite moment as a sports fan. Oh, there's a few. Uh, look, I'm a huge AFL Demons fan, as you said. I had an enjoyable 2018 going along to a couple of finals and, and watching those. And they were definitely good moments last year, at, uh, especially the Geelong match, watching the, the ceiling goal on the wing in the, in the MCC members is a, is a highlight. But by far the, uh, the highlight of my watching career, I suppose, as a fan, have to be uh, getting in for the final set of, now I have to work this back, it would have been the 2017 uh, Australian Open final, I believe, between Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. And uh, I think I, I got in uh, just as a changeover of the sets and, and Rafa was up three love before, I think from memory, Federer won six straight games or five straight games, certainly. Uh, it was some of the best tennis I've ever seen. So that was that's probably the highlight of my uh, of my fandom being able to see those two live. It's the uh, first opportunity I ever had to do that. So that was that was definitely my highlight. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember that um 2017 final. It was a great match, and yeah, Federer just uh, stormed back and was able to to take to take that out, didn't he? Yeah, it was an, it was an interesting year that one. That was the that was the. The renaissance, I suppose, of those two players. We hadn't really seen them in a in a final, certainly not in uh, in Melbourne in quite a while. And and they both had really really solid tournaments. And of course, it had been quite a while since Federer had beaten Nadal in a big match too. And, and he came out and he he played very different style of tennis, very aggressive up on the baseline. But it was just so good to watch because they were both they were both hitting just at that point in that fifth set. They were both tired, but they were still hitting so well. Um, it just reminds you of, uh, I suppose, your your own thoughts about your own own uh, playing uh, ability, and uh, perhaps that you're not quite. You've got a few steps, I suppose, before you're up to that level. <laughs> what about your personal sporting claim to fame? Oh, geez, I'm not sure how I how I can paint this. Mom, paint a good picture of me. Unfortunately, most of my claims to fame are not uh, not particularly positive. Uh, I have, I suppose. From a sideline, not a playing perspective, I have had the opportunity uh, last year, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more because she's definitely in the news. I had the opportunity to watch uh, and and do statistics for the live statistics for uh, Ash Barty in her final up in Sydney, which unfortunately she uh, she just got pipped on the line against Petra Kvitova last year, and that was certainly a highlight. Um, and uh, having done, I've been doing stats at the Open now for uh, about, I think this will be coming up to my ninth year this year, uh, next year that is, sorry. And so that's certainly one of the one of the things that uh, I've had an opportunity to meet some pretty pretty quality people through that, and some relatively famous tennis players on the way too. But probably my claim to fame, unfortunately, is going to have to take me back to my school days. Uh, and this is not a this is not a happy story, really. In my year twelve year at a very small school of twenty uh, twenty six students in year twelve in our year level, uh, we somehow were able to put together an AFL football team, uh, which very very nicely one of the admins at our school entered into a competition with three uh, AW for the worst football team in Victoria, <laughs> uh, which which we duly won. Uh, and our prize was that we ended up having, uh, I believe, we had a training session with Tony Shaw. We were coached in a match by Ron Barassi, and 
in that match we coached by Ron Barassi, I believe we kicked five goals, which unless I'm mistaken, and I could be, is more than we scored in the rest of the matches combined. That might give you an idea how, unfortunately, <laughs> however, all of that work maybe didn't work out as well as it could have because in the last match of, uh, of our season, um, we played uh, against a local school out, out in the eastern suburbs and I believe the final score it was something along the lines of, uh, I think we scored two points and I think they were 117. Jeez. It's only, uh, I think it was a, it's a 45-minute match effectively or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it was, that was a rough, rough day. Well, so whereabouts was your school? Uh, so the school is called Southwood. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not really a school as such by that name anymore. It's through uh, Tintern High Schools now. Um, but out in the eastern suburbs, out in Ringwood. Uh, it was, yeah, it was an entertaining, entertaining uh, year, that's for sure. We, uh, we really, we were, we were struggling to get anybody who could play. Uh, back then, to give you an idea, and Mo, probably you wouldn't be aware of how short I was as a kid because you met me at uni. Uh, yeah. I was a bit taller then, but I was probably about, oh, I might have just been five foot and about mm. or maybe just 40 kilos. So I wasn't really <laughs> built to play footy. No. Uh, and when you've got me as probably one of the better kicks in the team, it probably gave you an idea of how struggling we were for uh, for talent in that particular <laughs> that particular year level. Wow! But hey, I mean, you say it's a bit tough, but uh, all I hear is silver linings. There, you got to meet Tony Shaw, you got to meet Ron Barassi, absolute legends of the game. Uh, you know, that would have been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the two highlights definitely getting a. A rev up from Ron Barassi was definitely something for a game. That was that was something to behold. But uh, our uh, our coach at the time, one of the teachers at the school, uh, had one of those mock newspaper headlines made up for himself, and I thought that was pretty funny. And it said, "Barassi blames Warner," which is the teacher's name. But Barassi blames Warner in big uh, big text for the for the fact that we lost the game. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Oh, that's fantastic. And how's the, um, just take you back to what you mentioned about being the statistician at the Open. How, how's that experience been and what's the biggest game that you've kept uh, statistics for so far? Biggest game? That's, that's a tough one, probably. So I've, I've been working at the, as I said, in the, the Australian Open statistics now, I think, as I said, eight years. I think this is coming up to my ninth uh, in 2019. Uh, sorry, 2020. That is, but biggest game. I don't know. I've, I've started some. I've started some big players, but often in the early rounds when they tend to have relatively easy, easy, easy matches. I did in my first year actually out on an outside court. I think it was about court eight. I believe I started a game between Grigor Dimitrov and Jeremy Shardy, which was a pretty solid five setter that went, I think, for about four hours. Um, and those, that was both when those players were very much unheard of or just up and coming, I suppose. I think um, Dimitrov even then had a bit of a, um, a following, but he really hadn't done anything. It was, it was about nine, as I said, eight, nine years ago. And that was probably one of the better matches I've started. I, had, I also was lucky enough to be part of the team working on the finals up in Sydney last year and the year before. Uh, and obviously there you get to see some great matches. Got to see Dimonor versus Medvedev when Dimonor lost the final and then, of course, Dimonor winning the final uh, this year. So both, both of those have been great matches. He's a very, very easy player to watch play tennis and be excited about because he definitely gives you everything he's got. Bit of the Leighton Hewitt spirit about uh, 
that, Alex, that's for sure. No, it's fantastic, mate. Thanks for that share. Let's uh, kick off with your Melbourne Demons. So, 2018, right? Pretty good season. 14 and 8, finished fifth, beat two of the better teams of the last, you know, 10 years or so in, in, in the premiership. So you, you beat the Cats and then you, you smashed the Hawks by six goals before putting up a bit of an insipid performance, really, against the Eagles uh, in the prelim, uh, losing by 11. However, by, by all accounts, a great season, right? You seemed like a season where Melbourne has turned a corner with that, you know, young crew really coming along, your Brayshaws, your Vineys, uh, Olivers, you know, just coming along and really taking that team to that next level. So there was a lot expected out of the Melbourne Demons this season. And halfway through, you're three and nine. You've, you know, already lost as many games as you lost all of last season. Halfway through, only the three wins, one of them over the Gold Coast Suns by just the one point. What the hell's happened to the Demons this year, Scott? (laughs) Well, look, if I could tell you, I'd probably be be up for a uh, a gig at the at the club at the moment. I think I think they're trying to work out what's happened, but I think there's a number of possible reasons you can put forward. None of them in itself is probably enough to explain what's happened to us this year. But I think your your first point's right. We had a we had a pretty ordinary start to last season as well, actually. Uh, and we really once we got going, um, we we only really scraped into the finals. It was only the last couple of weeks where we we actually confirmed that we were actually going to be playing finals and then the finals that we put up in those first two weeks we played some of our best football uh especially against Geelong a match that we really dominated even though perhaps we didn't put it on the scoreboard as much as we did in the end of the match against Hawthorne I think the match against West Coast was probably uh gave a bit of an idea of the fact that when things didn't go right with that particular team uh, we were very easy to score against. And that has definitely been shown to be uh, the case this year as well. And that's definitely our biggest weakness. Our defensive structure is is not great. And I suppose the follow-up from, from that match to this year is that um, the 6-6-6 move is definitely not favourable to the way the coaches have decided to structure our defence, which is with players floating in I don't know where. As a fan, sometimes I have... I don't think the players know what they're doing, let alone um, the coaching structure. But uh, yeah, the, they're, they're not, with the exception of maybe one or two of those more experienced backmen, they're not used to playing one-on-one. And uh, now that now that that's, uh, that's an expected part of the, uh, of the setup, that's not favourable to us. Um, but I think the I think there's there's two other main main things I could put forward as possible excuses. I don't know that they explain everything, and I really hope that if everything gets right, that uh, 2020 might be a different story. But obviously the fact, I think we had something like 18 or 19 players on our list into surgery over uh, over summer is obviously a, a, a big problem for uh, especially some of our younger players. Um, you even look at someone like Clayton Oliver, who's still playing good football. He's lost, he's probably, especially in the first, first five or six rounds of the season, lost a yard. I suppose is the old fashioned saying, and, and that makes a big difference as an inside midfielder because I mean he really becomes little more than a handballing machine, which is you know he's still pretty good at, but uh, definitely lacks the outside outside run that he'd been showing last year, and I think that can be put down somewhat to a, a diminished preseason. Um, you look at players like Viney. I mean to some extent our forward line like uh, uh, Tom McDonald. 
uh, surgery and injuries over the over the preseason definitely haven't helped. But all that put into perspective, I think the the biggest the biggest hole, and you'll probably be able to read some some statistics at me in a second when I talk about our inside fifties because we get the ball forward. Our, we've got the best ruckman in the league. Some people argue with with Brody Grundy, but he certainly. Uh, but Gorn certainly smashed him last week, and I think uh, he's been playing amazing, amazing football this year, um, which gives you an idea of how bad the rest of our game is. But we're getting getting forward fifty entries, we're winning clearances, we're winning winning the ruck consistently, and the forward fifty entries are going nowhere. There's there's a number of possible reasons for that, but the number one reason is that our entries are just high bombs, and you know, as a forward, that's not great. I'll come back to an, a bit of a story about uh, some of those bombs, but when you look at often who the only forward sitting in our forward line has been the last couple of weeks, Jeff Garlett, it's not, not a great tactic. I was going to talk about Jeffrey Garlett, actually, oh, um, given geez. he's an old Carlton, uh, you know, Carlton player and, and you know, there's a lot of speed and he's, he's a small sort of, you know, roaming uh, forward that just feeds off scraps, really, and, and gets behind, you know, players with his speed. But I just don't think he's been used effectively at the demons, and one of the reasons is I think you've you've lost a bit of forward structure in terms of targets as well. Um, yeah, absolutely you know, true. Yeah, and obviously with with Hogan leaving the team, don't think it helped very much. I don't think you really got the right. Uh, also, like when you look season on season, you've brought in. I think Stephen Stephen May is probably the the highest profile player that you brought in over the summer, and. I don't think they've brought anyone else in to make that team better. And part of it is, like you said, when you look, look at it in isolation that you made the, you made the prelim, um, the list management and, the, and sort of the, the coaching staff can have a look and say, you know what, this team's actually in pretty decent shape. We don't need to make many changes. But as you mentioned, when you talk about the number of injuries and the fact that in 2018, you only cemented your spot in the finals towards the last couple of rounds of the season, the team in some ways overachieved a little bit. And I don't think they brought in the right reinforcements or people to take the team to the next level, and it's it's showing during that season. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I, I'm not a. I was a, had big reservations about uh, the trade deal that we did with uh, Hogan and May. I thought we definitely got a very much a raw end of that deal. I think Hogan is, and we'll see what he produces at Frio. I don't I don't know whether or not he'll become what he he certainly had the potential to be. But he's a once in a generation player, or he was for us. Um, as far as a full forward who can just take that mantle, and you know, he even when he has lean matches, which you know you get criticised for a lot as a uh, as a big forward, but he's taking the attention away. And you, you you look you look at a player like Sam Widerman in the finals, who had a great final series last year, but who's really he's played less than fifty games. He's he's not there yet. Um, and even Tom McDonald, who really has become a forward only in the last two seasons, they're now the number one targets for defenders. If you're a defender and you're seeing that they're the number one uh, forward as opposed to Jesse Hogan, you've got to be liking your chances. Yeah, I mean, you're really, really limited in our structure these, uh, at this stage. And I think that that's a, that's a very disappointing um, part of the trading. Um, I think you'll also see that what we've now ended up with is... For so many years, as a Melbourne fan, and I'm sure you can empathise with me here, Mo, uh, for so many years we've suffered from having just no good players anywhere. Um, 
and we looked for midfield and midfield and midfield for season after season. And finally, we started getting something right at the draft and we've been able to get our hands on players like Brayshaw and uh, Oliver and Viney. And we've built a very solid midfield. I don't think you'll find many people who can, who can actually say that our midfield structure itself is our weakness. It's, it's our strength. And I think if you match us up against most teams in the league, it's actually a, a very solid uh, lineup, but it's our forward line and to some extent our defensive line that are really lacking. Um, obviously, really important to get Jake Lever back last week after a long time away. He'll, he'll be huge for our defence, I think. But expecting him to just turn things around back there immediately is, is a pretty long shot, I think. But you look at our forward line and we just we don't have, we do not have any structure to it and we certainly don't have a list up there that you're going to be confident is going to kick 100 points every week. And that was our thing last year. We, that's what we were doing. We were kicking 100 points but basically most weeks that we were winning. Um, this year, we're lucky to kick 50. So you can, you can immediately see that that's a, that's a big hole in our, uh, in our structure. And, and yeah, as if you're looking at the, the list management, they've, I suppose, tried to shore up our defence, which for some reason, they've got a consideration that we've, we're lacking there. And that's what they've done over the last few years. But we've really done it at the detriment of our forward line, which now is, well, really in, in disarray. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned how, you know, at the very least, I think you have a top two Ruckman in, in the league, if not number one, right? Yeah. Before anyone jumps on us with uh, Gorn <laughs> and Grundy and, and whatever else. I, I really, I definitely rate Gorn. I think he's fantastic. So you're getting the taps, you're getting the clearances, and that's, in, the, in modern footy, that's half the battle right now, is that you actually get first use of the ball and you have the midfielders to carry it forward. Now... In addition to the to the lack of the forward structure, are the midfielders sort of under instructions not to lower their eyes and try to to hit targets because it's it's the pain point that we have with uh, Carlton as well. Until recently, you know, they sort of making a a concerted effort to actually lower their eyes and try to hit up a target instead of once they get a clearance just to bomb it into that forward line. And when you consider the personnel. It's, you know, not every team has a Kerno in, in our case or Errol Mackay who can really take decent contested marks. They're just great in, in the air. I think, you know, maybe he's a bit undersized, but Dugowie does it really well for, for Collingwood as well. But for most teams, I mean, there's a reason forwards go on a lead and, and you try to hit them up so that you can get them a, a free shot at goal. What's the issue there? Is it that the, the skill set isn't there or... Is it just to get rid of the ball as quickly as possible? Because when, when you look at those stats, there's no reason you should be kicking 50 points a game. Yeah, I think there's a few things. I think, first of all, there's definitely, this is definitely an area where I think the, the comment about those injuries is definitely relevant. Um, the outside run of our midfielders is lacking. Uh, you, you look at some of those players uh, this year compared to last year, and they are two steps, two steps slower, uh, I suppose, which means immediately they feel the pressure to release earlier and there's less of that, you know, the low piercing ball into the inside 50 looking, on, looking for the lead. They're more likely to go high and long. Um, that's definitely an issue. Um, but I think, think even bigger than that is we've, we've really, we, we, we have got a bit of, and this was an issue last year too, um, a tendency to get a lot of clearances but not the quality of clearance perhaps that, you know, are going to result in regular shots on goal. I was watching last night's match a little bit of it in the last quarter 
Um, and I, I think there was, they highlighted it on the coverage as well. There was a tap um, from, I think it was from Bell Chambers down to um, Merritt, who was looping around the back as a left footer. And he was able to run onto it, loop around and run basically directly down the ground towards his forward 50 on the left foot and dart a 50 metre pass that maybe went maximum about five, six metres off the ground. Now, if you can if you can do that regularly, your defend, defenders are going to have a lot of difficulty defending that kind of pass, unless it's especially if it's on target. And I mean, from that particular one, I'm pretty sure they kicked a goal. But that's the thing that's been lacking this year for us. We haven't been getting those quality clearances for sure. It was a bit of an issue last year, but if you looked at our midfield, uh, our forward line, it was much more. There was much more of a hunting aspect to it. Um, players like Hannon, who's just come back again from injury, who's a big plus for us, who's quick and, and, and hungry and also a very good overhead mark for his height. You look at uh, the way that we were using players like Spargo last year as a hunting forward with pace this year. He doesn't even, he, he really is showing very little in that regard. He's still obviously a hungry player, but doesn't have the, doesn't seem to be quick enough on the ground to keep up with his his opponent, and we also had, I suppose, the, the target of um, well, when when Hogan was injured and we lost him towards the end of the year, we still had that the target of of Tom McDonald in top form, and and when he is in top form, he was kicking straight, which just meant every ball that he got, if he took a mark, it was a goal, and if you're only taking one mark from five entries, but you're kicking all of those goals, that makes a big difference too. And right now, we're not kicking straight; our clearances are less quality. Our forward line structure is not there. I think you combine all those things and, and it doesn't take much in this game as I think you've seen. I think we're the, the prime example. It doesn't take much of this game to fall off the pace and we've fallen right from being a, what everybody seemed to think was a contender into what is clearly a bottom five team. Yes, and so just going by what you're saying, is Simon Goodwin still the right man for the job at Melbourne? Oh, look, uh, I don't know how much you can put in, in stock in one year. I think... Um, the, the biggest thing that annoys me about it is, and I'm a Melbourne supporter and I have been all my life, so I've seen it repeatedly, but my, my father has certainly seen it more than me and he likes to tell me this story all the time, being a, a 50-year sufferer of, or plus 60-plus years of suffering supporting this, this club, is that this is just kind of expected. Uh, we're used to this kind of thing. Even in the glory days of my childhood when with Neil Danaher leading the team and talk about years like 98 and 2000, every odd year in that particular era, we didn't make the finals. It was just kind of expected that, you know, we would, we would not show up as if that was okay. And I suppose that attitude is an issue, I think, club-wide. And the fact that the supporters are starting to, starting to feel like that's, you know, it's still okay to just be mediocre. It's a very frustrating thing to cope with as a, as a fan. Um, I, I don't think there's any reason right now that you decide that Goodwin's on probation or anything like that. However, I can tell you right now that if, if this is how we start next year, I mean, this season's done as far as I'm concerned, and I called this a few weeks ago. Plenty, uh, it's, it's very, very obvious that our season's over. Um, we don't have the wherewithal to, to turn it around and do something Sydney-like and make the finals from here. It's all about next season. If if we rock up next season and play the same style of football and, and look like the team we are this year, as opposed to the team we were last year, I, I think you'll probably find that not just will there be pressure on Gorn, but there'll be pressure on all the people who are making decisions. 
because they've got it wrong. If that's the case, again, not enough evidence yet, but 2020 is is going to be a big deal. You know, and just as winning uh, becomes a habit, I think losing becomes a habit as well. And yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I guess look for better or worse. One thing about my team, Carlton, is that in general hi- hierarchy just won't put up with losing for too long, and. It is a legacy of, you know, 16 premierships being competitive pretty much throughout our um, history as a club up until the early 2000s. And if we're losing, which we have been for years now, but we've been through like four or five coaches, you know, we've gone through that many changes at the board level, CEO changes, etc. in that despite everything that's happening and everything that has happened in the last, you know, 10 years and even 14 years that I've been a member now, since we got Mark Murphy in, in round, you know, in the, as a first-round pick, you know, back in 2005, I think. As supporters, we still won't put up with mediocrity beyond a certain period. Like, I don't know how, how to explain it. Like, the thought process is, no, you're not expected to actually be, um, you know, be in the bottom of the pile even despite the list we have, despite the fact that we're recycling through, I don't know how many, 50 players or so over the last three or four seasons, after last season, everyone's like, you know what? You guys are making a push to at least, if not the bottom half of the eight, the, the top half of, of, you know, like between 10 positions, 10 to 12, I guess. And when that didn't happen, like, you know what? Coach is gone. It's just too much. And, and I think our fan base, and, you know, you can talk to the Demons fan base, despite all the crap that we've been through the last 15 years, we still have a sense of urgency. And, and as I said, it's for better or worse, right? The, the, the good part of it is you're always demanding that the team must improve. And even though we're not, we're always demanding changes. On the other hand, it can lead to instability, to some infighting, you know, board getting pressure to be changed because we're not improving, etc. But it's just never static. And I feel growing up and watching Melbourne... I just feel you guys sort of go with the flow and things are sort of very static along the way at Melbourne. It's like, oh, yeah, we've got some good players. We're playing well. And then we're not. So we're sort of, yeah, okay, we're not making finals now and, and things are okay. I just never feel a sense of urgency um, coming out of the Melbourne Demons. I mean, that's definitely a fair point. I think I'm hopeful um, talking with other other fans and, and being involved with, the, with uh, well, at least seeing it and hearing it every week that, I feel like that that attitude in, in supporters is changing and I hope it's changing at the club level too. I think I've got a lot of respect for the, the people who have been involved with our club over the last uh, five or six years in turning it around. The, the team that worked around with Paul Ruse that brought us from the absolute, the absolute edge of the world as far as we were concerned, we were, we were rock bottom uh, when he joined our club. We had had maybe, I think it would have been around about eight or nine years of just terrible teams and I mean teams that we'll be lucky to win three or four games and we knew most weeks that if we were going to the footy we were going to watch our team get absolutely thrashed and the fact that even though we still got we still got beaten consistently for those first couple of years under Paul Ruse I think the attitude changed um, the attitude certainly changed at a club level and I, I feel like it's changing at a, at a supporter level and I hope I hope that the, the feeling from this year is that if this is not an exception, so if this is the exception to the rule that becomes the, the, the gas, the, the fuel for the, next, for the next five years of our club, because 
as you say, our list hasn't changed much. We've still got basically the same team as last year with a few minor tweaks. If this year is the is the fuel for what goes on, we'll we'll deal with it. But if if this goes on the start of next year, there'll be I, I hope that there's effectively a riot because if there's not, then we're back to old school Melbourne, as you say, placid. We'll just accept whatever we get. Absolutely, mate. And I think you know, hopefully that urgency from the fan base translates or you know finds its way up to the decision makers at the club whether it's your you know president of football or the list management the ceo of the board etc and you know i'm i'm a big proponent of winning now i'm not a i don't subscribe to the idea of uh you know, like build, I mean, you need to build a bit, but this sort of our big rebuilds and let's go on a five-year plan and a seven-year plan. I think given the nature of sport and how hard it is to win, if you have a window, you must take that window, right? Yep. The idea of having a, of having parity in the competition and, and in the ideal world of, you know, how the AFL would think, every club would win once every 18 years now, right? Ideally, you'd be having a cycle of clubs winning, but that's just not how it works. Because once the club's at the top, you usually have a run of three or four years where you might, you know, make a few prelims and you can win one or two. And we see how hard it is as it is to win. I mean, look at the Bulldogs. You just have to hit that year. Look at Richmond. You get it done because there's no guarantee after that, right? So you just have to make the most of what you have when you have it, and you know, you just work towards it. It's just when Carlton, just when like Carlton got Chris Judd, you you just had to make the move. You can't wait around and saying, oh, you know what? Kennedy's developing, Murphy's developing, Cruz is developing. Look at, um, who's to say, even if Kennedy were to stay around, for example, look how many years it took him to establish himself as, you know, one of the premier forwards of the competition. And then Cruz is injured all the time, right? So you, yeah. you just never know when that, when that window is there. And when it is there, you just must pounce on it, get your couple of premierships, and that'll sort of hold you in good stead for another, you know, gets you some goodwill, builds the club well, gets finances going. You have stability to be able to go again another five years down the line. So hopefully the demons get back on track. Yeah, I'd, I'd like that a bit. I'd like my father to see another premiership. He's, uh, he's 70 now. He was, I think, 16 when, in 1964 when we won our last. Wow. But as, as one, of, one of my good friends uh, says... Uh, he's a bulldog supporter, and he says, "You know, you pay a million dollars for Tom Boyd a season. That is um, exactly you pay, you pay whatever, and you know what? You got a premiership. The rest is worth the it, rest right. is history. Exactly right. And you know, you know, and hopefully Tom, you know, deals with all the issues that he he has right now. But even at the time, and he wasn't having the best season, and." After the game he had in that grand final, I told my doggies mates and, and they agreed. I'm like, mate, it's worth every cent uh, yeah. of, of that million dollars. You have that premiership now and that, that sort of, uh, it's off your back now. You don't have to keep, be that club that's been waiting for so long anymore. And I just think, yeah, like I said, you just have to, you know, make the move uh, when, when you have that window. Toronto Raptors are a good example of that, by the way. So we might uh, 100%. today, we might talk about that. But yeah, absolutely. Mate, there's uh, three things that I'm sure about in life. Death. Oh, here we go. Death is one, you know, as morbid as it is. Uh, taxes, probably more morbid than death in some, uh, some cases. Uh. And Rafa Nadal winning the French Open. So <laughs> that's 12 now. He's dropped, he dropped two sets the whole open, uh, this, uh, you know, th- this slam, you know, beat Federer in straight sets um, in the semi. And I think once TM got over Novak, 
you know, in my mind, I thought Rafa might sweep him, but, you know, he got it in four. Has there ever been a player as dominant as Rafa is on a particular surface? Well, not in my lifetime. Uh, the best players of 40, 50 years ago might talk to it, but I would say statistically, no. And I doubt there ever will be again. <laughs> it's a pretty short answer, but Nadal is on that surface. The way he hits a ball, the way it jumps, his consistency of shot, and even it's hard to hard to realise, but he's he's probably maybe at about seventy percent fitness of what he was at his peak, at his peak. He's, he doesn't quite have that same running capacity, that same that same shoulder, and a few other injuries that he's had to deal with over time and just adjust. For he's he's not recovered fully from them. He's he just kind of covers for them. But to understand that a player is at maybe 80 percent of their peak, and that they are still so far ahead of the rest of the pack on that surface is just amazing. I have to admit, I find it difficult to watch watch Nadal on clay because it, the matches are just so one-sided. Um, he's an amazing player to watch, but he just it, it's almost like he's he's playing against a a wall. Um, but the walls inevitably going to lose somehow. It's, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but I mean, it's phenomenal. Yeah, look, it's just so incredible, and his uh, and it's it's interesting you mentioned that he's probably at seventy percent of what he was at his peak fitness wise. But the way he covers the court and the way he hits that ball with you know so much spin and power that he puts you out of points, you know, you know, very quickly when, when he does that and he, he can grind you down. And like you said, it's, it's an interesting analogy with, with playing against the wall. And, and it is, he just, he's just never, never defeated on a point-by-point point basis. And I don't think anyone brings that much energy to every point they play. And he's never cheated the fans, I think, for his whole career. Yeah, I mean, he, he always gives you a good... Uh a good sight, that's for sure. But I think perhaps the biggest thing about Nadal at the French Open is to consider the people who've actually beaten him there. Um, I still remember, and I, I was actually showing it to one of my mates at the tennis this year because I think he was too young to actually remember it. But uh, I think I think it might have been 2006. Could be getting that wrong. It's a long time ago. But Robin Soderling, when he had that absolutely brilliant tournament at the French Open and ended up rocking up against Federer in the final um, and didn't really didn't really play anywhere near his best, and that's Federer's only uh, French Open title. But he has Robin Soderling to thank because Soderling beat Nadal in possibly one of the best displays that I've probably ever seen on a tennis court, and that gives you an idea how hard it is to beat Nadal on clay. That Soderling basically played perfect tennis. He he was hitting winners past Nadal on that on that day that they had to be perfectly placed they had to be at full power and even then he'd probably have to hit two or three of those shots to actually beat Nadal such as his court coverage and his positioning I just I think when you look at when you look at history uh, in 20 30 40 years time I think everybody will look back and say of this era that the players that we had are amazing um, whether or not we see that again in, in terms of three or four players dominating the, the the top echelons of men's tennis I don't know but I doubt we'll ever see someone who's basically infallible on a surface like Nadal. Um, that match, by the way, that Robin Soderling match, that's probably the that's probably the best match of tennis. Obviously not live, but that I've 
ever seen such. And that gives you probably the best insight into how hard it is to beat Nadal on clay. And you think it's even better than the uh, Federer-Nadal-Wimbledon final? I remember that final too. I was watching that. In fact, that would have been the year after or very close. It was not far away timeline-wise. That Wimbledon final was amazing. I just think watching a player, and, and I've... I've also said that the best matches that I've seen at the Australian Open two consecutive years when he was at his best, uh, Stan Wawrinka played Djokovic here. And it was a story of a big hitting player against a retriever. Mm-hmm. And those are always the best matches in men's tennis as far as I'm concerned because Djokovic just gets everything back. And so for Wawrinka to win a point, he'd have to come up with shot after shot after shot. And those two matches, those two Wawrinka-Djokovic matches, I think, one of them was 12-10 and the other was 10-8 in the fifth set. Something like that. Some two very, very long matches or 14-12, one of them might have been actually. Um, but just they went forever and they were just amazing matches. And I think from that perspective, the way that Federer plays, it's very counterpunchy. Um, it's beautiful to watch, but you're never quite going to get that epic struggle of complete opposite sides. And Nadal against Soderling that day, not that he always is, but he was the retriever. He was, I just need to keep getting balls back and coming up with winners from five metres behind the court because Soderling was on top of the court hitting every ball as hard as he could. And I think that's one of the reasons that it just made it just an incredible game to watch. No, you're right. It's almost like uh, Soderling played his final in that semi against Rafa because he was so impossible really to beat at the French Open. And it happens to a lot of... uh, either teams or individuals who come up against the reigning champion or the superstar in a game that is not the final and you beat them. And once you've done that, you sort of almost lose that 5% that mm. that sort of took you, got you over the line. And not to take away anything, obviously, from from Roger, who who is a, a legend in his own right. But yeah, I mean, because if Soderling played that same game against uh, Federer that he did against Nadal, he would have won uh, that slam. But it's yeah. just human nature, I think, and, and it's what happens. Yeah, he also, I think he admitted that he, he walked into that final not thinking that he could win, which is <laughs> at that level obviously not going to help. Uh, I have been corrected, though. I'll just, uh, just check in that it's, uh, it was 2009, not 2006, that, that match. But um, just, And you look at the statistics and that Nadal's basically, you look at Nadal's titles and it's that, that year stands out. So you look at the, the career statistics, he's won at the French Open. And you just look for the gap. And there it is in 2009, courtesy of courtesy of that loss to Robin Soderling. So, yeah, that one will stay in my mind forever. But, yep, I think Nadal, Federer, probably maybe they've got – maybe Federer's got two more years in him. I mean, he could keep going forever if he wants, but I don't know. At some point, surely his, his body's got to prevent him from actually being able to, to beat those top players on the hard courts. Nadal might go a bit longer, but he's certainly had more uh, strenuous injuries over his career. So we'll see because he's the same age as me, <laughs> which probably means my tennis career is just about uh, on the downslide as well. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think Djokovic will last longer than either of those, those two, and he might pip them for Grand Slam's total one. But when you look back at history, you'll see that there's this guy named Rafael Nadal who won, well, at least 12 maybe more titles out of, what is it, about 14 years? There might be two two years missed in there somehow. Just this, the stats books 
won't know what to do with it. <laughs> so actually, you bring up the point about the, the wider legacy of those three. And you know, Federer's 37, Nadal's four years younger, and now he trails him by two slams. Who will end up with more when it's all said and done, do you reckon? Do you think, um, you know, and obviously Nadal has had more injuries, like you said, so I'm not quite sure he can last as long as Roger. But given just his overall dominance on clay, would he have uh, you know, a couple more chances to win more Grand Slams than Roger when it's all said and done? I think below his best, if it, if it makes sense, that they're, they're both obviously not going to be at their peak of power now in their career. I think given, given their history on surfaces, as time goes on, you would expect that it will become harder and harder for Federer to win tournaments, as it will Nadal. But the fact that Nadal has that, that clay dominance to fall back on and the confidence it gives him, he's all, I mean, probably until someone proves it otherwise, Nadal's going to rock up to, the, to Roland Garros and think, I'll probably go, I'm probably going to win this tournament if I play well. And until someone comes along that, that shows otherwise that they are, actually up to beating him on clay consistently uh you know he could he could win another nine <laughs> he could be winning them into his 40s you've got to find someone who can beat him the difference with Federer is there's always been people who can beat him he just has shown up on the big stage time after time um and perhaps that's a harder thing to keep going as you know you move into your into your 40s and which is he's getting very close to um Nadal's got a bit of bit of time on that being a bit younger but I mean, I could honestly see Nadal getting very close to winning 20 French Opens. Yeah. <laughs> before, just remember, before this generation, nobody had won 20 Grand Slams. No one, nobody had won even close to 20 Grand Slams. So the fact that I can say that out loud and I don't think it sounds ridiculous, yeah, I don't know how to put it into perspective really. Very valid point. And it sort of brings me to the contrast and there's nothing that's more predict- unpredictable than... Melbourne weather other than women's <laughs> tennis, right? Uh, and, yeah. You know, maybe there's been one constant which has been Serena over the years, but essentially, mate, it's almost tournament to tournament, to be honest. You just have no idea who's going to show up, who's going to play well, how's it all going to go? And for the life of me, I just can't put my finger on why women's tennis, in a good way sometimes, that it's just so unpredictable, but also, you know, you just don't know who's going to win. Uh, game to game. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> I, I've I've made many comments to it. I'll be careful with uh, exactly what I say here because it it can often often be construed as being a bit offensive to female tennis players. But if you can predict women's tennis, come and see me. Uh, I've got some. I don't have a lot of money, but I'd be more than happy to invest it in whatever stocks you recommend. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 one of those things. I can tell you, however, that as bad a closest close to a prediction that I've ever made about women's tennis that's come out right uh, is that having seen Ash Barty close up this year and watching her against an on-fire Petra Kvitova who was playing about as well as she could play, especially up in Sydney, um, and then she just fell short at the Australian Open as well against Naomi Osaka, who was playing very well at that time. I can tell you that is no surprise to me that Ash Barty has won a Grand Slam this year. And the reason that she got through is because of the lack of consistency of those top women and that Ash's game is a, is a very solid, solid game, perhaps without the big weapons of some of those, those players who hit very, very big off the back. And even though she's not 
not a fan of clay as a surface, that difference to some of the, the other top women is actually a huge advantage for her. Um, so in that regard, I'm not, not particularly surprised that she's come out on top this year. I, I pretty much said to some of my friends at the, the start of this year that if you're looking for a, you're looking for a player to follow in women's tennis this year, um, Ash Barty will win something. So I'm not sure I would have predicted she'd win the French Open, but I'm certainly not surprised that she's made it onto the big stage and, and now in the you know, top, top few players in the world. But that said, I think women's tennis is probably the number one sport in the world and feel free to correct me if you think I'm wrong for form being the least constant thing. It just doesn't hold. I agree, mate. It's, it baffles me. I mean, I, you know, given the time difference, etc., I wasn't watching a lot of the, the opening grounds uh, of the French Open, but then I'd look up and it'll say Osaka has been knocked out and Serena Williams has been knocked out and all the other sort of top five players just kept, kept dropping like flies and then all of a sudden it just opened up for Ash who was having a great tournament. I mean, she only dropped two sets for the whole thing and you know she only looked in real trouble in that semi when she lost 7-6 in the first and but then she sort of steadied mm. and she did really well but you know you, you just can't help but think you know if there was some consistency in a lot of those you know you can tell me a tennis player a women's tennis player is in the top 10 and she's playing like a, a qualifier and I couldn't hand on heart say, you know what, 95% chance she's going to win. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's incredible. When you think of, you know, you're at the top of your game, you know, one of the hardest sports in the world and you're ranked top 10 and just a stand, you know, a normal sort of punter viewer who watches tennis casually cannot hand on heart say, you know what, I've seen this movie way too many times before. You know, you're probably an, an 85, 15% pr- probability to win. And I just find that incredible at, at the top level of a sport. Yeah, I, I can't, I, I find it difficult to disagree. I think as I've discussed with a lot of people over time, the, the main difference between men's and women's tennis and ignore everything else, the, the main difference is that the, the level of upper body strength that the male, um, the male players have allows them to consistently hold serve. A break in the men's game is often enough not always, depending on the player, but often enough to win a set. That's never been the case in women's tennis because the main reason being, with perhaps the exception of someone like Serena Williams, there's really not been a player who you could say 95% of the time is going to hold their serve. That's just not a thing. And that in itself, I think, makes it a little bit, you know, it doesn't take much. It only takes a couple of games for a player who seems to be on top on top of the world to go suddenly to just dropping off if they're serving poorly and maybe missing more returns than they otherwise would, they suddenly go from winning a set six love to losing the next set six love. Uh, Yelena Yankovic was famous for it, um, somehow ranked number one in the world and she'd often follow a, a six love uh, set up with a love six set down. Um, it's con- just confusing and something that you just wouldn't see in men's tennis because of the way that the the serve dictates the way the match uh, runs. But I think the biggest story probably there now, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the statistics, so apologies if I get this wrong, but uh, Sloane Stevens, after she won the US Open, I believe she lost 15 straight matches. Incredible. Incredible. That's, I mean, it's unheard of. So, yeah, I, I'd love to come up with an explanation for why it is. Perhaps it's that to get 
the, the, the style of player at the top of the women's game seems to fit into two categories. You've got the, the ones who are just ball machines and then you've got the players perhaps more like Kvitova who have you know quite extensive range and are quite tall but also big power big power game compared to the other players on the tour. Um, and if they just off, if they're on their game, they're very, very hard to beat. But if they're just off a little bit, you know, the unforced errors creep up. There's no serve really getting them three points repeatedly to hold them together. And, and it just, that drop off is, is significant. So I, I don't know if you can come up with an explanation for me, Mo, um, put your best people onto it and come back to me. And <laughs> if you've come up with something, let me know because it would break open the world of sport, I think, if we could explain women's tennis. I think um, we might reach out to our friend Lara, see if uh, she has any views on <laughs> on the women's game and, and why that, that sort of inconsistency is there. But, you know, Wimbledon's two weeks out, so do you want to put your um, your head on the chopping block and, and predict a winner for the for the upcoming Wimbledon on the women's side of the draw? On the women's side of the draw? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. um, look, to be honest, I would probably, I, I wouldn't be able to do it, I wouldn't be able to do it with any confidence right now. I'd have to go and have a look at actually, actually how the women are playing on grass because it's, it's one of those surfaces where you often see a big difference, especially in the, in the top women, uh, that, that those players who, as I said before, one of the big issues in the women's game is they don't have that, that reliable first serve to win them a lot of points. On grass, you get a lot more out of your first serve and those players who do have a slightly bigger serve, players like Kvitova, have been shown to do quite well on grass for that very reason. And so I would always, I mean, I don't know how she's travelling at the moment. I know she's... She's had some ups and downs over the last 18, 24 months. But if she's thereabouts, she'd definitely be in my, in my list of players to watch. I think you'd be a fool to say that after winning on clay, going to her favourite, favourite surface that Ash Barty won't be there thereabouts. And uh, I think you're basically looking for anybody, any, anybody who fits that slightly more power-heavy game. And so I actually wouldn't be surprised if you saw someone like Osaka, who certainly had a poor three or four months by her standards, coming back into her own at, at Wimbledon too. But as I said before, if I could predict women's tennis, I'd be a, I'd probably be a very rich man. Uh, so um, I'm sure that the the job offers would be coming left, right, and centre. But um, I'm on the I'm on the Barty train. I think she's she could be the first person to really in a long time to go from clay to grass that isn't Serena Williams and look like the number one threat on both services in the women's game, I think she'll be very, very hard to beat. And with that high seeding that she now has, it'll probably get a slightly easier run to the, to the uh, later rounds. Absolutely. And, you know, all the best for Ash uh, at Wimbledon. Thanks for your time, Scott. Yeah, no worries, Mo. Uh, I hope it's, uh, it's been enlightening. We've talked a lot of tennis. Uh, just That's been fantastic. Quick, we, yeah, go on. Yeah, quick shout out because I know you're going to hate this so much after all the... Uh, I mean, if your fans don't know that you're a Carlton fan, they certainly know that you're a Manchester United fan. But number six, mate, number six. Mate, you know, I I get to delete stuff if I want to, right? (laughs) (laughs) I just had to throw it out there because it's been a long time between drinks. It it has, but no, they, they they did a good job, definitely. Thank you. Thanks again, Scott. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Leave us your comments and your feedback. 